With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Live from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, the Total Education Show, the talk shop for teachers, parents, and administrators. Here's your host of the show, Neil Haley, the Total Tutor. Fantastic. I'm excited to welcome the program from American Ninja Warrior, co-host Akbar Baja, B.M. Miller. How are you, man? And uh... Going down tonight, uh, and it's going to be a big show. We're in the finals. We have the Los Angeles finals. Uh, we've got a, some amazing stories tonight. We've got, uh, you know, you're going to see Jesse LaGraff. You're going to see uh, Flip Rodriguez. So you're going to see some big-time competitors go at it. Of course, the ones who move on from here get a shot at a million dollars in Las Vegas. Uh, but one of our, probably one of our strongest cities here in Los Angeles, uh, I, I can't wait for everyone to see the story. You know, it's interesting, Akbar, when you talk about American Ninja Warrior, a lot of people don't understand how challenging this is. I had Evan Dollard on a couple years ago talking about how challenging the task was, and I started watching it. The obstacle course is so difficult, isn't it? Yeah, it's wicked because it's a it's a physical and mental thing where, you know, you, you see some of the, the 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 obstacles and you see the way they look and you go, wow, like I could never do that. And uh, and that's the physical element. But the mental part that a lot of people don't know is that when the competitors step on the course, even though they've been doing it for several years, sometimes, it, I mean, it's the first time they've seen the obstacles. So each year we put in new obstacles. This year we had to do 27 new obstacles because we knew that we had to step it up. Last year, of course, Isaac Caldero was our first uh, winner, and yeah. he won a million dollars. And so now everybody wants a shot at it. I mean, we're talking about people who are quitting their jobs, or now there are more ninja gyms than there have ever been in the history. I mean, you can go from coast to coast, and you'll find multiple <laughs> ninja warrior gyms. I mean, in the Midwest, they've got one on the East Coast, on the West Coast, up north. Wherever you go, there's ninja gyms because everybody's now preparing. This has literally become a sport. I mean, there's become conversations now, should American Ninja Warrior be a sport? And, and, and the question to me is, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely should so. be a sport. Uh and you look at the people who are competing. What I love about it that's different from any other sport is the fact that you have men and women competing on the same exact platform. Uh, there is no adjustment. There is no maneuvering. There, none of that. We, we do it the same for I mean, regardless of your size, height, weight, age. It doesn't matter. Gender. And so that's where, you know, this thing becomes really relatable. And I think that's why the stories are so cool. And you think about the stuff that some of these competitors have to overcome. I mean, some of them are just fresh out of chemotherapy. Some of them have gone through personal, uh, you know, through, through personal trauma that, I mean, like emotional trauma where you think, well, how could someone compete at this high level having gone through this? Um, you know, we had uh, several cities ago, we had a competitor, AT3, who competed on uh, with prosthetic, one leg. I mean, one leg, and, you know, to watch that. Or, you know, my father, who has Parkinson's disease, and of course, you know, recently we lost Muhammad Ali, um, you know, yeah. obviously a great, the greatest of all time. 
And, you know, people see Muhammad Ali and they see two things. They see, you know, the sign of greatness, but we also see a man who is fighting the battle against Parkinson's, a man, you know, once known for his quick seat. And, you know, I mean, I still think back to 1996 uh, with him holding yes. up the torch and in a, looking at my father and, and I just go, wow, man, Parkinson's so tough. And then all of a sudden I meet yeah. Allison Topperwine, Ninja Warrior, who right before she was getting ready to compete had to take some of her Parkinson medication, and she's shaking, oh, and she's my. shuffling, and she goes out there, and she's competing on American Ninja Warrior. And I ask people the That's question, wild. what's your excuse? Why can't you, you know, be an American Ninja Warrior? But, it, you know, I, I think it speaks to everyone, regardless if you're just – you know, a person that thinks that, oh, I'm just an ordinary person. Oh, I couldn't do it. Or if you're an extraordinary, extraordinary athlete like uh, an Aaron Rodgers or the retired Charles Woodson, yes. these guys who I spoke with personally who told me, you know, I want to do American Ninja Warrior. Of course, Aaron Rodgers may not have a chance with all that money he's making. <laughs> yeah, and, and what about you in the ob- obstacle course? Have you ever tried it? Yeah, I have tried it. Uh, I tried it several several uh, years back at uh, Houston, but contractually I'm not supposed to when it's all set up. But I just kind of ignored the idea that uh, the contract said I couldn't. And I said, oh, well, you know, maybe they'll give me a pass here because uh, I said I didn't read it. <laughs> but uh, I, I didn't get too far just because I was shut down uh, by the NBC execs and the, and the production company. They were like, no, 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 no. We can't have this. You got to get off. I was like, ah. You know, so I felt like a little kid, like, oh, no, why I? <laughs> but, uh, but I will say, though, it's been uh, – it was an amazing experience, and it, it allows me to connect with the athletes. People always ask, man, how are you – I mean, how is it that you're so excited? Because I can relate to them. I can relate to the, you know, the story of being that athlete and, and being that person who's uh, the underdog. And you imagine – also – how they end up being YouTubes, like just like one person going through the obstacle course. I remember a story a couple of years ago of this woman who just kept going through and doing such amazing things, better than the men. Casey Catanzaro. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, Casey Catanzaro. She became at that point was the first woman to ever complete a qualifying and a finals run. And we had seen so much success from the men in the previous season and. You know, the one thing was like, well, this course is really just meant for for men. And, and there was some doubt. There was some doubt, I think, throughout where it was like, well, is this obstacle too hard or is it just, you know, was it a psychological thing? And we kind of just stuck to our guns. And uh, we just kind of stuck with it. And, and when you start looking at it, and all of a sudden when Casey Catanzaro, five feet, 100 pounds, maybe 100 pounds, woman going through there and, I mean, competing with, I mean, a bunch of Hercules and went out there and absolutely destroyed the course. And that's when it just started to light motivation. And it's kind of like success begets success. And then all of a sudden, in comes Megan Martin, and she had her success. And then you have yeah. uh, Jesse LaGrasse, and then you have Jesse the Flex LeBret, and then you have all of these women competitors um, coming out, Michelle Warnke, and then all of a sudden now, We've had more than five women get up the wharf wall and go far and get it, go to Vegas. And so we've seen these competitors just continuously grow. And so now there's a whole wave of women come out there who are better than a lot of the men who are competing. I mean, where else do you see men and women? You don't see it in the NFL. You definitely don't see it in the NBA. No. They have a WNBA and an NBA league. 
We don't have that. We don't have women American Ninja Warrior and men American Ninja Warrior. We have one American Ninja Warrior. We have a new uh, website that kind of documents the, uh, the series, American Ninja Warrior Nation. Check it out. It's pretty good. But this Monday night, I, I mean, you'll see why the craze is just getting bigger and bigger tonight, uh, 8 p.m. on NBC. So, so after 8 p.m. NBC, how much more of the competitions left for the season, Akbar? What's left after? Well, we'll have – we're in the finals. So we'll have four – after tonight, we'll have four more final rounds before we head into uh, the Las Vegas uh, finals for the championship round, for the chance for the million dollars. Uh, so we have Los Angeles, we have Philadelphia, we have OKC, um, and I'm forgetting another city that we have. Oh, in Atlanta, we have those finals coming up, and then after that, we uh, we go for the big the, the the big money. And every year that they don't win the million dollars, right? Akbar, you said that it, it doesn't no, happen no, la- always. The last year, that's right. Last year was the first year that anyone had ever won on American Ninja Warrior, and I think that was one of the intriguing points of it. Like, man, like. How is it that no one's ever won the show? Each year, um, you take any show, you know, because somebody's always winning something. We had never had a million-dollar winner, and it was so cool because I remember coming out of San Diego State and, and getting a contract with the Oakland Raiders, um, and I remember looking at my first paycheck, you know, having coming from humble beginnings, and I just remember right. staring and that feeling of going, oh, my goodness, my life is about to change. And I saw that same thing in Isaac Caldero, you know, a guy who told me, Man, I never had more than $5,000 in my account. Gosh. And to see him, just that look, it was just like glazing. I, I can't, I can't, you just have to have been there to see the look on his face. And I was so genuinely happy for him that he had won a million dollars and that his life was going to change. You seem so pumped up. Best place again tonight. Tune in 8 p.m. Eastern, American Ninja Warrior on NBC, but also Akbar. Where can we follow you and find information on you? Absolutely. You know, I, I'm on on all platforms uh, except for Facebook, uh, Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram. I'm Akbar, A-K-B-A-R underscore A, uh, excuse me, G-B-A-J-A. And then uh, for Facebook, I'm Akbar, G-B-A-J-A, all one word. Thanks for calling, man. Best of luck. And uh, I'm going to be playing this over and over. I run a lot of the shows again and again to promote the rest of the season as well. So thanks for telling me the story and how motivated you are about being a co-host on American Ninja Warrior. It's a really exciting show. I hope everyone tunes in. Take care. Thank you. See ya. Okay, bye-bye. You're listening to Total Celebrity Show. We'll be back. I'm all year and I'm ready to go and I'm glad they won the cup. So it'll be yeah. good to meet him. It'll be nice to uh, nice Absolutely. And uh, would, were you a fan of Nick before he came to Pittsburgh? Absolutely, yeah, no, definitely. Back from when he was on the Canucks and uh, all, all the way through the uh, Ducks as well, so it's good. We're glad to have him. Where are you from in Pittsburgh? Uh, from North Hills. North Hills, right? Uh, just right over by, um, right over by uh, the subway at Papa John's. Oh, right on Babcock. oh, fantastic! So being in the back row, I, I think you're gonna be you'll be in good luck. I think it's 200. I just wanted to make sure, hey, we'll get you on and stuff like that, and say. What would be a message to all the other Pittsburgh fans out there to get the opportunity? What did they miss out on? Uh, you're missing out on Benino. <laughs> exactly. The HPPA line. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Okay. Hello. Hey, guys. We're doing a radio interview and a television, Neil Haley, BPTV, and nationally total celebrity show. What do you guys think? 
about getting to meet Nick. Are you excited about Oh, this? yeah, I've been pretty excited about this for the last two days, yeah. It's fantastic Macy's is doing this, right? Yeah, I mean, it's awesome. It reminds me when I was a kid, and I'm dating myself, when I met Rolling Stargell, when I met uh, certain Steelers, when it was Coffins, and they would do it, and you get to line up and do the autograph thing. Yeah. So, uh, it's tremendous, and when did you hear about this? That's Yesterday. I, last time I did one of these, in 2009, after they won the Cup, I did it with Max Talbot, so like, this is the first time since then, this is just so awesome, we get to do it again. Where are you guys from? Butler. Butler. Okay, yes, so I'm in Gibsonia, so I'm not okay. too far from you guys at all, so hopefully you get some opportunities. What question would you ask me? What do you, if you have What's it feel like to raise the Stanley Cup, like that moment when you're putting that thing out there, I just want to know what it feels like, you know what I mean? It's got to be a cool experience when the Stanley Cup. Oh yeah, I can't believe I showed up on Only Media, they had two cameras and I lucked out to get to interview him. Yeah. Oh, you got to interview him? I got to interview him. I didn't expect that. I expected like a line. I'm like, okay, yeah. cool. So, all right, well, good luck, guys, and yeah, uh, enjoy it for sure. The young man Hi. Right. We're with the Total Celebrity Network and Total Education. What would you like to ask Nick Bonino? Um, how heavy is the Stanley Cup? How heavy is it? That's a great question. Yeah, exactly. Are you hoping to see it eventually sometime around Pittsburgh? Yeah. Did you watch that game, or did you stay up that late? Yeah. Awesome. And one thing, where are you guys from? Mars. Mars, okay. I'm getting Gibsonia. So it's for TV, Bethel Park. We're going to put some of this together, but also if there's Verizon channels in certain areas all over Pittsburgh, plus I'm going to put it on as part of the, after the interview with Nick, fans' yeah, reaction great. to what they're going to go ahead and do. So it's great Macy's did this, right? I think it's fantastic. fantastic. It really is. And uh, <laughs> exciting. I just got the press release Friday and said, media, it's go. I said, I'm coming. There's no doubt about it. And it was such a great opportunity. So good luck meeting him. Thank you. Hi, guys. We're Media BPTV, Total Celebrity Show. We want to ask you a question about what you think about meeting Nick Benino. How excited are you guys? Oh, we're really excited. We're really excited. Yeah. Looking forward to it. We were the third and fourth people to get tickets. We came right as the store opened. So, yeah. Really oh, excited. really? So you've yeah. been waiting since what time? Uh, yeah. Well, no, we weren't, we weren't waiting. We came at like 10 o'clock. And picked him up? Yeah. yeah. We skipped swim practice. So, yeah. Okay. There, there wasn't anyone here. We just kind of <laughs> walked we just ran in. But yeah, tickets. it was. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. And once you found out, you're like, yeah, blown oh, away. Were, exactly. You're there. Yeah. Yep. It's it's great that they do this. And I was uh, talking to people earlier in the line saying I got to meet Willie Starger when I was a kid, and yeah. got to meet certain people like uh, Franco Harris. They used to do it so much more. Macy should definitely consider that in other places to get him. The stars here because yeah. oh, it's yeah. such a draw. Mm -hmm. And to get to yep. meet somebody after they win the cup, what an awesome yeah. experience. Yeah. Where are you guys from? Right over there, McCandless. McCandless. Yeah, okay. The okay. Well. Yep. Good meeting you guys. Yeah, thank you. All right, Thanks. take care. Somebody, this young man. Uh, hi, Total Education Network. What are you going to ask Nick Benino when you meet him? Um, just what it felt like to win the cup. I don't know, just how it feels. Did you yeah. watch all the games? Yeah, I was at the game too. You so were it was pretty at fun. the game. Oh, that's awesome. And let's get a close-up there of your shirt. Yes, very nice. And where are you from? Um, just Score Hill in Pittsburgh. Okay, well, this is going to be on BPTV. And on the radio, after the radio interview I did with him, I'm putting fans on after the sound bites about whatever meeting Nick Benino. I'll figure it out. Maybe I'll put it first. That might be good. There you go. Just thinking of these things. I, I thought I was just going to get a rope off. I didn't expect to get sitting right next to the talk, so that was awesome. That was awesome. That was a great experience. Okay, guys. Let's get this gal. Let's get this cute gal. What are you going to ask Nick Benino when you get a chance to meet him? Well, I'm going to say congratulations. I'm going to say how does it feel to be a Stanley Cup champion? Thank you.
And I see you're wearing your official shirt. I'm going to get a close-up on that shirt. Did you go out that same night and buy it? No, next day. Okay, next day. You weren't one of those diehards that went to get sporting goods, huh? Were you at the game? No. No. I wasn't. And where are you from? Um, Plum. Uh, Neil Haley, Nick's whole education now tells celebrity show, nationally syndicated radio and do TV locally. Oh, so awesome. so thanks. Awesome. All right. Okay. Are the mics on? Or? Yep. Okay. Mics are hot. Well, uh, we are live again with Nick Bedino, Stanley Cup champion. That must have been your dream your whole life to win the cup, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. Uh, just hearing that uh, being said. Uh, still kind of gives me the chills. It's uh, a lifelong dream for sure, especially um, playing hockey growing up is what you want. And uh, to do it here in Pittsburgh made it even uh, better with the fans. And uh, the city won a championship. How did you feel once you knew you're a champion, Stanley Cup champion? Uh, it's, uh, it's still uh, kind of a pinch me moment. Mm -hmm. I think when Hornquist scored in, in game six to make it 3-1, we all uh, let out a collective sigh. I think yes. uh, at that point we knew We'd really have to screw up to lose, and um, we just got the job done. It's it's been a whirlwind. It's it's already been a week since we did it, and uh, something that I'll never forget. But uh, I wish I could have that that moment back on the ice with the cup, because that's uh, what you dream about, and it flies by. When Crosby handed you the cup, that must have been so unbelievable. Yeah, I think I actually got it from uh, Haglin, which was was pretty cool, just being on my line. Um, it was pretty cool to see Sid hand it off to Daly, who's played 900 games, and, and it was his first time winning, and then Duper got it, and we all know he retired. So um, it was cool to be on the ice for that. It was great to see everyone else hold it, but uh, it was really fun when I got to hold it. What are your plans when you get to host the Cup? What are you planning on doing? Uh, it's going to be pretty low-key. I'm going to go golfing uh, with the Cup for sure right away, and then... Uh, I've said this a few times, I'm going to eat some pasta out of it with my grandparents. She's going to make a, a big uh, a big bowl of pasta, we'll put it in there and eat, and then I'll have a, maybe a local signing at a school and then do um, a party for all friends and family at night. What, would, what advice would you offer kids that want to be in your position someday, what to do? Uh, just believe you can do it. Um, I think the biggest, biggest advice I have for kids who want to be athletes are make sure you play uh, more than one sport growing up. You see a lot of kids burn out that, uh, that play one sport year-round. I know for me, I played everything. I played lacrosse, soccer, basketball, baseball, um, tennis. I love tennis. Right, right, right. Um, you do that, you get a little bit more rounded. Uh, you kind of can focus on different things. And uh, it was always good to take a break from hockey in the summers and focus on other stuff and then go back to it, and it was fresh. You saw that specialization at times keeps you from not being well-rounded, and at times, as you said, constantly playing the same sport, it, becomes, it really burns you out in so many ways, and being well-rounded, you focus on each season, right, and a new opportunity to try something new. Sounds yeah, like. yeah, absolutely. Um, my freshman year of high school, I wrestled at 103 pounds. I was, I was oh, 99 really? pounds. Um, so I was tiny. I hit a growth spurt um, that next year, and, and that was when I kind of knew I could play hockey seriously, but um, I was a goalie in lacrosse, then I was a defender in lacrosse, I was a wrestler, I played basketball, oh, wow. I played okay. soccer, so um, I love to play other sports, I love to golf, uh, and uh, obviously I love to play hockey. What's your second favorite sport? Um, I like I like every sport, I, I think right now it's golf, it, it matches up so well with hockey, I think uh, the only thing with winning the Stanley Cup is that he cuts into the golf season a little bit, so I'll have, to, uh, I'll have to catch up on that a little bit. 
um, over the next month and a half and uh, start working out pretty soon here. And that's the the long season you have. You're right back working out very soon. It's like the because hockey season is such a long season. You got to be ready for the next season already, almost. Yeah, absolutely. I think the trainers and team knows that uh, we get a little bit of time to party here and um, just kind of hang out and rest the bodies because they definitely need to recover. That's part of it. But uh, we'll get back at it. I'll probably be in the gym um, maybe after this weekend. Uh, golf a little bit this weekend at home and then. Um, start working out again. Well, thanks for stopping by the Total Celebrity Show. Best of luck to you, and we can follow you at Nick Medina on Twitter, correct? Yeah. And tweet yeah. you out, and everybody should tweet him out. Okay, yeah, sure. tweet thank out you. a pic. All right, well, thanks for stopping by. I appreciate yeah. it. Thank you. Excited to welcome the program. Uh, this is going to be an interesting conversation. Brian Kenny, MLB Network, from the MLB Network, author of Ahead of the Curve, Inside the Baseball Revolution. Brian, thanks for calling. How are you? Uh, I'm doing well. Good to talk to you. Great to talk to you too, Brian. When you think about your years at Sports Center and things like that, was baseball always like your favorite sport to cover through that time? Oh yeah, in, no, no, no question. Uh, that was my passion growing up and going to the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown when I was a kid. Then when I was a, a sportscaster in upstate New York, I had a talk show. I would do Hall of Fame nights. Yeah, it was always baseball. Always, always baseball. Interesting. And so when you had those opportunities come to being part of more and more just baseball-oriented, that's just your passion, your love, and uh, learn a lot about it from uh, those experiences, haven't you, in baseball? And well, that, that was part of the – Yeah, I'm sorry. That, that was part of the reason going, why I would go to you know, Major League Baseball Network. I, I enjoyed my years at ESPN. I was there 14 years. But the chance to do baseball – full-time, all the time, is something I loved. I mean, even writing this book, like when I would get home at night after working and writing my essays for TV, um, it, it, it was something I enjoyed doing. It wasn't a chore. Uh, you know, what's better than studying baseball and writing about baseball? For me, nothing. Oh, there's definitely nothing, and, and, and for sure. And you've just seen the growth. And, again, when we talk about this, I think the baseball traditionalists are going to want to debate you on this, right, Brian? And that's another reason why you wrote this book is because you've seen such an evolution in baseball. Yeah, and and also to to take it to another level in, you know, as I learned, because as you write, you learn. And as I wrote the book, I, I started to dig into more of not just, you know, hey, why do sports writers resist this information? Why do ball players resist? Why, why did the industry resist sabermetrics? But like, why do we as humans resist? You know, they're, they're human beings like, like everyone else. Um, and there, there is a certain faction of people, a lot, most of us actually, um, resist good information. We're hardwired um, to not do analytical work. Uh, I, I, I go into a lot of behavioral science in the book as to, you know, how we think and how often do we Actually, not only to, to quote you know, an interview guru that, uh, that I interviewed, he works for ESPN, and, and he has, um, he's boiled interviewing down to a science, and he teaches it at ESPN. His name is John Sawatsky. And I asked him, how often do people accept your practices, and how often do they fight them? And he said, well, he goes, some people accept it and the information, and they use it, but most people revert back to what they used to do. And his quote to me was, it's, e it's easy to change your mind, but it's difficult to change your habits. 
and the, and that's the interesting part, Brian. I'm a former teacher, uh, own a tutoring consulting company, so I look at analytics all the time with you know testing and standardized testing, looking at specifically what makes it tick, so that I have an idea before I work with a student. And then the same thing when it comes to baseball, that when you know the history of these players, when you know a, a pitcher will bats a certain uh, only uh, the the batter only bats a certain batting average, you know that if you make this shift, this team will dominate you. Analytics are the key, and to think about all the stuff that's available now, film wise via film and analytics, what are they missing? It's just shocking to me. Well, again, yeah, the the new um, the new wave of all this is Statcast. <clears throat> you know, now there's you know microwave radar uh, rigged into you know every stadium. It's uh, you know it's out there measuring everything that's measurable. You know, tracking players, tracking spin rate, exit velocity, everything that happens on the field, and with that we now go into another age, you know, the next phase of analytics. And this phase is very, uh, I would call it, scouty. You know, this is something that isn't like, you know, that, something that will turn off ball players and coaches. This is something these guys love because it's talking about things that they've always valued, except now you ha- you'll have these exact and precise measurements. And, and and how many – so of the teams right now, who do you think does the best when it comes to using these analytics uh, on a daily basis as, a, as managers and, and baseball? Well, there's a lot of teams at the forefront of it that are, that are kind of in that top tier. I would say the best are the Houston Astros, the Tampa Bay Rays, Chicago Cubs – uh, but everybody has an analytics department. The Kansas City Royals, even though they're kind of a, they have this veneer of being tradition-based, they've got a, a, a you know a, an analytics department. The Yankees have the largest analytics department. Um, the San Francisco Giants use basically a you know kind of a, a theory of best practices. They have analytics people. Everybody has it. But the team that is you know to you know get to the top of it, the team that's at the forefront of going whole you know full bore into this stuff and doing it unapologetically that it's definitely the Houston Astros. And then you just saw the change in how they turned around their, 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 their franchise in such a quick time. Would you owe it to that in a lot of ways, the Saber metrics? Oh yeah, no question. I mean, they went into it. I do, I do a whole chapter in the book on one of their employees and it, this is, this is, you know, the, the gist of it that they hired him and they put out a press release hiring Sig Madoll and announcing him as their director of decision sciences. <laughs> At the time, it was pretty revolutionary for baseball. Were, you know, everyone was thinking director of decision sciences. What is this? Well, here's someone in their employ that is not just making decisions. He's looking at how the organization makes decisions and how they go about making them. Well, that's next level, and I have a whole chapter on Sigmadol and, and how he examines our own biases and blind spots and, and how that helps in your decision-making in an organization. I, I tell you, it's, 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 it's mind-blowing to think about it, but then you go to the skipper, Brian, and it all goes based on the skipper, right? So basically the general manager could be all in the metrics and every saber metrics and all these different things, but then the skipper the day of that game and – Maybe the preparations using metrics, but when it comes to day-to-day operations, who's the best manager that uses this? Oh, who is the best manager? Um, well, it's not—it's not even the guys who are 
you know, good at using the information or analytics. It's those who make the best decisions given their personnel, um, you know, given the odds. And, and those are traditional guys, Buck Showalter, Bruce Bochy, Joe Madden. You know, being a manager is being, you know, also a leader and a psychologist and a coach and maximizing performance. And there's all sorts of ways of doing that, you know, including Dusty Baker now for the Nationals, who is just, you know, a, a really good people person. He encourages people. He shows some caring and love. That matters, too. Now, when it comes down to, you know, tactics and strategy, yeah, I, I like that part of it because they're making decisions that will cost their teams millions of dollars. But you don't have to be into analytics. Again, you know, Buck Showalter doesn't call himself a sabermetrician, but he's always thinking and always thinking of the best way of, of doing something and making the proper decisions. That's good enough. Now, when you talk about all these people, the traditionalists, are you hoping that through your book you'll kind of turn the traditionalists into looking at sabermetrics in more ways? I would hope so. I mean, I think I, I wrote this knowing there are – varying degrees of baseball fans. There are those that, you know, a large segment of the population is still looking at pitcher wins and RBIs. And then there's this emerging population, the younger set that is, you know, grown up with analytics and sabermetrics that has already moved on from ERA and, you know, doesn't consider triple crown and all of those things. And they're just looking at stat cast numbers. But I write it, I think, to appeal to both groups to look into why we think the way we do, and then, okay, what's the next step? Where are we going next? And uh, the, the founding fathers of sabermetrics, like these guys are still alive. The, most of them are they're in their 70s, and these guys are still very relevant. You know, because of their thinking, because of the way they constantly challenge their own thinking and themselves, they, they haven't become dinosaurs that, that aren't, you know, with it anymore. They've stayed with it. And I hope I would stay like that as well, always fluid in your thinking and always move, moving forward. And that's what you do in your prep work always for baseball, for sure. Brian, best place to first purchase the book. We can purchase it any bookstore for sure. And then information on you. Where can we go? Yeah, it's on. I'm at uh, Mr. Brian Kenny on Twitter. You can find the book there. You can also, uh, it's, you know, barnesandnoble.com, amazon.com. It's, it's everywhere now. Simon & Schuster has published it. So, you know, you can find it out there. You can Google my name or, you know, look for Ahead of the Curve. And it's, it's out there now. And I hope people enjoy it. I hope we're going to see analytics a lot more in all different sports. I know that Jim Rutherford of the Penguins really used uh, Sabre-type metrics to build his hockey club, and I know that they do it in football as well. So I think everybody needs to get on that, that, that area. But use the traditional motivation means as well, but take all the information you have and go out there and do it. So thanks, Brian, for calling. It was a very, very um, interesting conversation. Take care. All right. Thank you very much. All right, see you later. Okay, bye-bye. All right, You're take care. No, thank you. Show. You're welcome. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Celebrity Show, and we'll be back in just a moment. Yeah. Welcome to the program. Former Real Housewives of New York star celebrity Jill Zarin. Let, let's, go, let's go specifically enough to what do you – when you decide to be, um, to, to be part of, the, of a reality television show, how concerned were you? Were you involved in entertainment before that at all? Absolutely not. <laughs> no, I was just living my life. And they kind of just plucked, they called me out of the blue. And, uh, you know, they say, you know, Hollywood called, Hollywood called. And I answered. 
And I just, you know, believe in fate and God. And I felt like, you know, if they found me, then this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Absolutely. And uh, as once you got yourself thrown into this uh, mix and uh, how, you know, how producers work and things like that, I was your story, Jill, I've had a Viva on my show before and I uh, have talked to other housewives from other shows, Real Housewives of D.C., Mary Ammons, different people like that, that you really have to prepare yourself for this because you just never know what the onslaught's going to be, is it? Well, you know, I have to say I was lucky. Maybe it was uh, fate or foe, but um, I, I didn't prepare myself for this because I was the first. Yeah. So I didn't have anything to prepare for. And, in fact, the show was called Manhattan Mom. So okay. I was shooting a show. I don't know what everyone else thought, but I was re- shooting a reality show about me and Allie. And some other girls huh. and their kids. So that's what we thought. And that's why the first season, you see a lot of me and Allison going up to Martha's Vineyard, doing things together. And, of course, when the show got renamed The Real Housewives of New York City, my daughter bailed off the show. Because that's not the, you know what she wanted. Gotcha, because she knew which what a lot of, Which a lot of people do. don't even know. Uh, yeah, she just kind of didn't want to be on TV in that kind of a TV show. You know, she knew she's a smart girl. She knew she had a whole life ahead of her and didn't want it to be affected by reality TV. But like like I said, I really didn't know. So like when Aviva came on, there was a lot of history already. She was filling our shoes. She already saw the show for four years. She knew exactly what she was signing up for. Good, better, and different. Interesting. And and what what your your story of the brand being the first of the Real Housewives of New York, really it was not the Real Housewives brand did not you know, to where it is today, uh, you know, with all these different Real Housewives shows, you up for some more of a reality show. It's about parenting, about family life. And then yeah. the gossip hits and the mix hits, hits and you're thrown into this. And especially in the first season of the Real Housewives of New York, it's saying, holy cow, what did I get myself into? And what are they doing? Right? Right. Well, you know, they, there was no rule book. So, and I'm sure Viva probably shares the same feelings that I do because we've talk, spoken about it, is that there's a lot of paranoia that comes into yeah. play because, you know, the network, you know, the network did one thing. We, um, we had a meeting after the show, uh, after the show was filmed and before we got famous, you know, before it came out on the air, we had one meeting for two hours with a media trainer and that was oh, it. And we never had it again. And we weren't told, you know, what a publicist is, what a publicist does. We weren't told what an agent is, what an agent does, when you need one, when you don't, when, when you need an, you know, any of that. Because honestly, and knowing both sides of the street now, because I've done some producing myself, you really don't want the talent to. Because it's like no. saying join the union. You know, why would you tell people you're negotiating with to join a union? So really it was, um, you know, every, every man for himself. And some of us did better than others. Um, and some of us were more prepared for the fame than others um, because uh, some of the girls had, had already been on television or been, you know, in the entertainment business already. So they were more prepared. Some of them took acting classes or whatever. You know, they were just more prepared. And then some were like me and Ramona. We were just like plucked out of our lives. You know, this, wasn't, this wasn't supposed to happen. And, and you had reasons to do a show, unlike some people that had other reasons. Aviva had well, my a reason, reason was, I don't, I, right, what was, yeah, what was Aviva's reason? What did she say her reason was? I think to get her platform out there, 
about uh, her the, uh, work like. with foundation work and stuff like that. I think that was the reason for Aviva. A lot of ways to get to bring awareness. I don't know. I, I, I'm not uh, sure if that backfired on her though, because I actually just met someone the other day and we were talking about the show. And I love Aviva; she's a friend of mine. So you know, there's nothing I would say I wouldn't say to her. But you know, I got backlash about her because they they felt that when she threw her leg at that last hurrah, and I know why she did it, so I defended her. But they felt that people who don't know all the story, they only know what they saw, is they felt that you know it 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 just. Whatever it is, they, the people who, who are amputees didn't like that she did that for whatever their reasons yes. are. And I don't even know, remember why. So I don't want to make it up. I don't remember why. But they didn't like it. Um, and I defended her and I said, well, you know, that's kind of a strategy thing because she um, was making a point that, you know, no one believed her. She actually was sick. She couldn't take the trip. She didn't get paid because she didn't take the trip. Nobody would not take a trip and not get paid if they couldn't. You know, if she could have gone, she would have. So they didn't believe her. They didn't believe that she was sick and she had to show doctor's notes. And she was trying to make the point like, you know, you don't believe me. You don't believe me. Well, do you believe me that my leg's not here? You know, here's my leg. You know, she was trying to make the point like I'm not a liar. And um, and it's TV. And she was making drama and, and all that other stuff. So people, you know, I think people were, not, were wrong to be angry at her about it. So when she used it as a platform, a little bit it backfired because a lot of amputees didn't like the platform that she used is all I'm saying, you know? Interesting, and, and I guess it, it's but it all boiled down, boiled, boiled because I interviewed Aviva twice, Jill, and it was before she was done with the Real Housewives in New York. So basically, I did not know she was kind of hinting at me during the interview that this is soon going to be over at one point in time. Then I had her on one more time after that because Mary Amons is good friends with Aviva, and that's how I got Aviva the first time. Then I went through a publicist the second time to chat with Aviva, but I think that truly she had. The, what happens? We get caught up in this world. Once we get in it to the for, to the celebrity world, we play into everybody on Twitter. We play into everyone on Instagram. We play into the talk shows, and it, and they and we forget why we did the show. And Joe, I think you agree with that as well. Um. Well, it definitely takes over. Uh. You know. I think now if you do a reality show like Real Housewives, you definitely know the playbook. There's definitely a playbook. In other words, there's enough books written by housewives out there. Nene wrote a book. I, I didn't write about housewives, but other housewives have written about housewives. So I think that, that if you want to do your homework, there's a lot of things that you could read, interviews you can hear, podcasts like yours that you can hear housewives talk about their experiences. So you're definitely going in a lot more prepared. Um, like I said, when I went on, there was no playbook. Nobody told us what to do. Even, even, you know, even if I, you know, if I were to go back now, which I'm not, I'm not, I'm saying that, you know, I still wouldn't know what's real and what's not real. I always had a problem with that. I never knew what was real and what wasn't real, meaning what, what really is happening. And then is it really happening only because of the TV show? And if, and of course it is. So does that make it real or does that not make it real? So like, for example, if you go on a trip with the girls. Is what's going on real? Because it is real. What you're saying, what you're doing, how you're feeling is very authentic. But you do know that that, that wouldn't be going on if Bob wouldn't pay for the trip. Exactly. So what's real and what isn't real? I still don't know the answer to that. I and that's where you scratch your head and, and think about things. And look at now, Jill. Things are going even more chaotic. With Periscope, Facebook Live, everyone could be a reality star. And they all could be their own reality And brand. they are. There's so many, you know, people, I'll see a bio on someone. I'm like, who's that? And they're like, oh, they're the, the biggest uh, Instagram star. They have a million Instagram followers. 
I'm like, how'd they get them? You know, naked? I don't know. Where'd they come from? <laughs> no, I mean, that's the, that, that cracks up, and there's so many different platforms out there for sure. So, Jill, in the experience, I, I kind of was doing some research on you before the interview. I saw you the, the Andy Cohen thing back in uh, after after they said you were fired from the Real Housewives. You came back again, didn't you, after that? I was on Andy's show uh, about eight months ago, maybe. No, no, I'm talking 2011. I'm going way back. And the first time oh, no, you were I was on Andy's, Andy's show, show and then, and then I wasn't on his show for like two or three years. I hadn't seen Andy. And then I came back in October this year because I was promoting a movie. Well, I felt there was no reason to come back. It wasn't that I wasn't asked. It was that there was no reason to. If I'm not going on to promote something, why am I going on? So I was going exactly. on his show to promote the movie that had just come out called Night of the Wild, which I was in, acting. You know, I was trying something new that I had never done before called acting. And I'm, I really, I, I don't think I'll do it again. I didn't really love it. I, it was okay. No, no, I'm not Andy. More Bravo. Real Housewives of New York, you were on how many seasons? So, like, that's oh, sorry. what I'm trying to get. Four seasons. <laughs> oh, I was on Housewives for four seasons, and I never went back. No cameo. Okay. Nothing. Okay, so you, so what year was the end, was your finishing with the Housewives of New York? I'm just kind of oh, I don't know. I don't know. I was on seasons history. one through four, and right now they're airing season eight. Okay, okay. So okay. a long time. And it's been a long time, a couple yeah. of years. And I, I think things have changed so much, Jill, in those years when you first started reality because I talked about this whole change for sure. So once once you realized you were a brand, after the experience on The Real Housewives in New York, you realized yourself was a you were a brand. You saw it before, but then you really capitalized on that afterwards, meaning to try to build yourself as Jill Zarin. Tell us about that. Yeah. Well, I started, I did different product lines. First, I wrote a book. I don't know the order. But first of all, Zarin Fabrics, that's our family business. So the reason I did okay. Housewives to begin with, going back to that question, was I did it to have fun, have a great family video, and to promote Zarin Fabrics. Because we okay. have this, you know, huge Lower East Side business, family business since 1936. And we are the largest discounter of drapery and upholstery fabric in New York. And I wanted to expand that you know, around the world and let people know we ship everywhere and all that stuff. So that was the reason I did it. That was the only reason to do it was to promote my brand. So then so you're smart. Because, you're not, you were an entrepreneur from the, the beginning and that's always, why you always. go on platforms. Yeah. Well, always. So then I came out with different things. I still have squeeze couture. I have a shapewear line that's in TJ Maxx and some other stores still. Um, it's been going on like five years. Um, and, and it's, it's a steady, nice business. I was on HSN. I'm not on it anymore, but it was, it's a nice business. And then I did a jewelry line for three years and then that ended, you know, things begin and end. And then I did, um, um, what else did I do? I did something else. I did jewelry. I can't remember. I do shapewear. I wrote my book. I think I did something else. Oh, I had a home line. I did um, bedding at Bed Bath Beyond. I tried it. You know, it didn't do well enough to stay. I mean, you have, they have very high expectations. I did not perform to the level they needed, but it was a great experience and I might do it again one day, but I learned a lot and I had a lot of fun. And I, if, if I'm not having fun, then it doesn't work. And I think that's the important part. And I, I like when you said you went on Andy's show, just you know, to promote the movie and we'll get to that, that basically you're, you are a person saying, why am I going to do an interview on a show or go out, put myself out there if I'm not promoting something. So let's go to the book now. Why did you write your book? I wrote it because I wanted to do it with my mother and my sister. Mm. And it's called Secrets of a Jewish Mother. 
It's all my mother's wisdom, my grandmother's wisdom. From my sister wrote it, physically wrote it. We all gave our stories. And it's a really great book. And it's timeless forever. And not only that, it was translated into three languages, Russian, Chinese, and Japanese. I couldn't believe it. They sold it into different languages. Fantastic. And I still get residual checks. I mean, I'm not you know, going to buy that's... a house with it, but, you know, it's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. But it, it's, it's um, a brand. It's exciting. And the, and it is. An it's, a, it's a foundation. And... I do a lot of speeches. I love to do that. I love to travel to, like, a lot of Jewish. Obviously, I'm Jewish, and I appeal to that crowd. Um, so I do a lot of JCCs and Jewish community centers and things like that um, around the country. I just recently did this two, one in Philadelphia. And where else? New Jersey. Two Jewish uh, temples that hired myself and my sister to come and speak about the book. And we answer questions about the show. We talk about the current situation with the girls. You know, we gossip. And in there we throw in a lot of wisdom, my mother's wisdom. And 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 that's and that's that's a fun thing. Now let's get to this acting thing. And then you say you were promoting acting. What made you, after the experiences on reality television, want to go to a something that's a little bit more I controlled? Didn't. I got asked. And... I got asked. Okay. My agent calls me up and says, "Listen, there's a role I think would be great for you. It's a horror movie. It's with Kelly Rutherford and Rob Morrow, from who's like an uh, an Emmy-winning uh, actor. Um, he was on Numbers and Northern Exposure. Really cute guy." And she said, um, it's like a lead role. It would be the fourth lead. And I'm like, but I don't know how to act. And she's like, don't worry about it. I'm going to send you the script just to put yourself on video. So my daughter held the video camera. I did the whole thing. I act. I'm a natural actor. I just, you know, I act, you know, being on a reality show is a little bit of acting. You're not acting like lying, but you're, you're yeah. acting. You're being, you know, you don't want to be monotone. You want to have inflection in your voice. And that's all part of acting. Exactly. So. Um, I did it. I did the audition. I got the role. They didn't even know it was Jill Darren from the Housewives. They just gave me the role based on my audition tape. And that was it. And I did. I went to New Orleans. I lived there for two weeks and with the cast. And I had a trailer and my name was on it. And I got food service. And I watched how they make movies. And it was really exciting. But I will say it's very slow. And it's a lot of repetition and repeating yourself and all that stuff. And I'm more of a reality star. I like to be one shot wonder. You know, just say what you're saying and move on. So, um, you know, I don't know if I have acting left in me. If I'll do another sh movie, I would love to if I get asked. But I don't see myself, you know, studying Stella Adler and, you know, becoming a real <laughs> dramatic actor. You know, I can be me. You want a Jewish American princess? I'll get the role. You want someone who's got a big mouth and can scream in a horror movie? You got me too. So, you know, play. And by the way, most actors do play a type. Most actors are not Meryl Streep who can play languages and you know, an old woman, a young woman, or this. Very few actors are really that gifted. Most actors play a role. You know, they're a superhero role. They're this role, you know. They're always the mother. They're always the daughter. So, uh, yeah, I, li I liked it. I liked the, the, the um, I did. And I'll probably do it again. But I, I don't consider myself a, you know, serious actor. And, and what you, being in New York, you know the opportunities will come with your agent. Your agent will always want to try to get you some work. So basically putting this on your resume is a great opportunity if other opportunities come your way. The right Absolutely. rule comes you audition for it. Absolutely. I mean, I think of myself as an entrepreneur, and I'm I'm six foot ten, Jill, and I'm a former pro wrestler. Are you really Maybe six I get foot ten? Yeah, I'm six foot ten, Yeah. And, well, how's the oxygen on that? Wait, how's the oxygen on that? Yeah. <laughs> I was saying I'm a former wrestler, and I, I couldn't imagine filming for two weeks when I try to run my business. 
business is. Well, not just I that. Couldn't... It's what it's doing. How would you like to say the same sentence 55 times? You know, yeah. it's like repeating yourself, repeating yourself. Because cause you say it, they shoot it one way. Then you have to say it a different way. Then you have to say it. Now the other guy messes up his line, so you have to re-say it. Then they take the cameras, they move them around, then you do the same scene again. And then you had your hand in the wrong place because they have somebody watching, so everything has to be in the right place. You know? But actors are funny. They do little tricks. They try to mess up a little bit. Like sometimes they'll move their their finger onto a different finger so that, you know, if you really watch the movie, you see that the finger, the ring moves from finger to finger because they cut it. You know, they cut the movie. You know, actors play uh, little tricks. Yeah, you know, I remember just uh, for one acting experience I had, I did a ice bucket challenge playing Darth Vader, and there were, it was just a commercial for about oh, two minutes. I remember minutes those and... years. That that yeah, crazy. Yeah, yeah. Everybody yeah. was doing that ice bucket challenge. That's crazy. Yeah. So that's my only. Did anybody raise any money? Um. Oh, for this one was just to promote Bethel Park t- Television, one of my TV stations, and, okay. and so it was a fun thing doing it and bringing awareness. But they raised so much money. I have no idea why they didn't do it a second year. So it's so interesting. That would be a great research to go back. What happened to the ice bucket challenge? Yeah, and why and how much money did they raise? Oh, I heard tons. So I don't know oh, why they they, uh, they 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 stopped. That was about two or three summers ago, Jill. I think it was two yeah. summers ago, maybe three. I, you know, time when I have five kids of my own, Jill. So everything's a you blur. Have five to me. children. <laughs> What, can I yes. can I be personal and ask you how many baby mamas? Just one mom. Oh, that's good. you have one one wife. Yeah, yeah. One wife. One wife. One wife. We were married. Our our anniversary is July first. Sixteen years we've been married. Oh, that's beautiful. That's you're very lucky, man. Very lucky. <laughs> so, but we're but we're talking about you know when I when I when I say this that uh, things are a blur. Like last year seems like yesterday, and you know how it is. And you're like talking about, did I talk about this? That was a long time ago, but it doesn't seem. All right. So, Jill, basically, I was listening to you while you're interviewing. It seems like you're focusing your attention on more after this experience acting that you want to be involved in reality television, but in a different way now, right? Oh, no, no. I don't want to be involved in reality television. I, I, I'm done. Okay. I'm really done. I'm, I'm, I'm retired. I love my life. I'm in the Hamptons right now. I'm actually at the hair salon getting my hair done, my nails done, my tan on for the weekend. I had a sleepover last night at my girlfriend's house with, like, some really powerful women. And we did a sleepover. We woke up this morning to breakfast, That the people making breakfast for us. My tennis pro came to the house to give us a tennis lesson. You know, my life is beautiful. I don't want to work. I don't want to do anything right now. You know, and okay. some opportunity comes across in front of me. And it looks like it's fun. I'll do it. But work. So you just like work. Yeah. So you'll just leave. You'll live your brand and when oper- and and keep uh, doing the entrepreneur stuff. But working like reality TV now. Nah, I've 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 been I've done my thing. I'm promoting my stuff. I've done it. My product line, things like that, right, Jill? And the others in selling yeah, my I'm book. I'm not saying I would never do it again. In fact, you know what? I'd love to say my friend. I got a call today to wish her good luck tonight. Patty Stanger's launch up for new. Reality show on We is on tonight um, called Million Dollar Matchmaker is on tonight. So I'm very excited for her. And I love watching Patty and hearing all about the, all the things that she's doing. Um, but I don't think I can see myself back on it again. And you did I have don't. a little bit of a reality thing on True TV as well. Do you want to talk about that experience or not? I did. 
What did I do? Oh, you yeah. That was because I'm friends with Ben Silverman. Ben Silverman has a, you know, and, and uh, Dave, David Spade did a show on True TV. He called me up. He says, do you want to do this? It was like being punked. It was so much fun. I had the best time, and I would do that in a heartbeat. Those kinds of things I love to do. I did Celebrity Wife Swap. That was great. Amazing. So, you know, things like that come across my desk. Absolutely, I'm in. I'm in to have fun. You know, I'm in to have fun. You've never lost your fans from the years of the Housewives, have you? That's the other thing I saw on your website. You really still have a great fan base that you stay connected with. I have an amazing fan base. I still have my fan base. I mean, I hope so. I, I, you know, I tweet and I, I'm not as good as I should be and I should do it more. I try. I, I've been Snapchatting a lot lately. People seem to like that. They like my Snapchat. Oh, I'm still trying Snapchats to figure that are really out. Because Snapchats are really what I'm doing right now. So people like to see okay. that. What am I doing right now? But I'm traveling all over the world. I just came back from China this spring and then I went to Thailand. And then in the fall, I'm not sure what I'm doing, but I already booked uh, Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos in February. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm traveling the world and enjoying my life with my husband, my family. I did a mother-daughter trip to Thailand, and we lived with the elephants at the Four Seasons. Any, are you on the line? Yes, I am. So I'm good really morning. excited. To, good morning. How are you? I'm welcome. I'm Very excited good. to welcome the program. The son of one of the original flag raisers of Iwo Jima, Rainy Gagnon, Jr., uh, Rainey, thanks for calling, and I appreciate you stopping by today. Well, thank you. My pleasure. Now, Rainey, question I'm sure people ask you all the time when they find out that your father was one of the original flag raisers. How does that make you feel, especially coming to, like, the 4th of July or any of the great uh, nation celebrations? I sort of address the situation pretty much like my dad always did in the fact that he was the messenger. He was one that got caught in a photograph that transcends time, that became famous, and he's there. He always said he was there to represent all of the soldiers that fought and gave their lives up on that island during that battle. Yeah. Uh, so he's very hum- he was very humble about it when you were growing up with him. Am I correct? It sounds like. Yeah. Yes, he was. He never wanted to go on display. Uh, he felt that his presence would be a reinforcement for all his fellow Marines and sailors, soldiers. Definitely. And how did your love of our country and stuff develop through your father and and for, for men in service in that process, did you kind of uh, uh, learn from that learn from that process and, and, and continue to grow and understand what your father was about once you finally learned about his history? Yeah, well, it was, it was certainly I was in a unique position of going through schools and having that photograph come up in various textbooks. And every time I would have to raise my hand and say, well, you all see a great image, American pride, liberty, justice. And I see a picture of my father. And it it was very um, trying to be as humble as I could, but it kept coming up. And it was just sort of, this is who I am. This is my dad. Uh, He is not a hero. He is my dad. He was a hero to me above 
everything else. You're on. That's fantastic. And you're on the show today because the Smithsonian Channel on uh, Sunday, July 3rd at 9 p.m. Eastern is going to have a special yep. on the unknown flag raiser of Iwo Jima. And this is an interesting part because can imagine if you didn't know that your father was one of the flag raisers and anytime a special comes up involving father, it's, it's very interesting for you, isn't it? Yes. I mean, it is, um, it's another step forward in the life of Iwo Jima in the Marines that fought there. And my dad is represented in a photograph that became iconic. And it's a wonderful tribute to everyone that was there. And I find it uh, simply amazing that I could be a part of this to try to keep it alive. In today's day and age, so many things are getting distorted, rearranged, changed. I'm glad to see that the Smithsonian has finally come about and done something to correct the names and to put it down for historical prosperity and the future of our country. That most definitely. And uh, what is the, the documentary again going to reveal Navy Corpsman uh, John Doc Bradley? And so that was that interesting to learn about that, that he's involved in this process in, in Iwo Jima and how they're going to talk about that. Well, that's, you know, John Bradley was my father's best man at his wedding. He's been a household name forever. And to see this come about uh, through photographic evidence, facial recognition, uh, they were, you know, misidentified. There was, uh, two flag raisings actually that day, one with a smaller flag, and uh, Bradley might have confused the two issues. So I'm not sure, but I'm glad to see that Harold Schultz has finally gotten recognition and to go down in history as one of the Marines that raised that flag on Iwo Jima. Yeah, definitely. And uh, so, and and Harold Schultz. I mean, and so were you surprised by that in a lot of ways, or it's it's great that something else is coming out from this, right? That finally everyone's well, being recognized for their heart, for, for what they've done, especially if they were part of that iconic foe. Right. Well, for several years now um, on Facebook and social media and everything else, uh, photographs, stories, everything has been floating around that there could be a misidentification. At first it was like, no, no, you can't do that. And, then I started thinking and looking at the photographs, and it's like, yeah, they might have made a mistake. Uh, I'm glad to see that posterity, the future of this country, will go down with the proper names. Six Marines raised that flag, and that's the recognition they should all have. Uh, for the um, Schultz's family, uh, he never married, never had any kids, but he married late in life and has a stepdaughter. And she, I reached out, talked to her a little bit, and was glad to hear that her father, her stepfather, finally got some recognition. Yeah, de- definitely. That sounds uh, that that's great. And uh, so, of, of of knowing that, she's probably learning more and more about how amazing that picture is, and how it really uh, motivates many people in the military today about fighting for our country. 
that's that photo I'm sure really? that everyone looks at. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure it does. I mean, I've got people walking up to me. I've got Iwo Jima on my license plate, and they ask about it, and I let them know. And they're, well, I joined the Marines, and part of the reason was because of that photograph. And, I mean, it inspires people from all walks of life. And when people come up and say, I joined the Marines because of your father. Oh, okay. <laughs> Thank you. And to be involved in a project like this, to talk about this, it's got to make you really, really happy. And I think that this project alone, meaning that's coming on Smithsonian, every history teacher needs to make sure they get a copy of this to play in their classrooms next year, for sure. July 3rd again, 9th. They, they definitely do. Yep. And, and, and I mean, even my grandchildren about, now are coming across. That, that's tremendous, Randy, for sure. It's fantastic. Okay, so everyone could check out Smithsonian Channel Sunday, July 3rd at 9 p.m. Eastern. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.